I trust you all had a, had a good week. It's that time of year when things start winding down and we start getting excited. Um, in fact, today we are 30 days away from Christmas. 30 days, I counted it yesterday. So the Christmas decorations at, at my house are on the ready. We've taken it out from where they've been packed away. You know, we're, we're, we're talking about our Christmas celebrations, our plans perhaps to, to take some time off. That festive mood is starting to take to happen in the air. Um, my, my daughter has presented me with her top five gift um, selections. And the, the catalogs keep coming and she's stacking up these catalogs and telling Cynthia, hide these things. <coughs> And so as part of us moving into and becoming mindful again of the, of the birth of the Savior, for the next two Sundays we are going to be looking at Old Testament prophecy that starts to introduce the idea of a Savior being born into a world that desperately needs hope. The world needed hope when the prophecies in the Old Testament were made, and the world needs hope now. And so we'll be looking at certain of these prophecies over the next two weeks. I've asked Bernadette if she would grace us with her presence next week, so she will be sharing another one of those. Now, anybody who studies religions will know that mythology is full of stories about various gods coming down from the heavens and doing various things on earth, most of which are unmentionable from a pulpit on a Sunday morning. There's even the legend of, of King Arthur, the mythical 6th century British king. And one of the recurrent aspects of the myth of this King Arthur was the notion that he would one day return in the role of a messiah to save his people. And if you move from the world of mythology into the world of Eastern religion, you will also find that there is a vast literature. There are stories of gods visiting the earth and sending their emissaries here to do work on their behalf and so forth and so on. There are literally millions of stories. Hinduism has several million gods. I believe the number is at 33 million gods and there are stories of most of these gods coming to earth at one time or another. And so even for us, as believers of Yahweh, of Elohim, we have to admit that there is nothing very special about the idea that our God should come to earth and be with us. But the Gospels are not talking about some member of the pantheist religion coming to earth to pay us a visit. The Gospels speak of the one God of the Old Testament coming to be with us in the person of Jesus Christ. And so for us as believers, we understand that the Old Testament doesn't stand on its own. But it is also a collection of writings that prepares the way for the coming of the Messiah. 
and the new people of God. And so for Jesus, the promise of the Old Testament was realized in his ministry, as Jesus said in Matthew 5 and verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The New Testament is bound to the Old Testament, and that, I think, is for good reason, because our belief is not some Johnny-come-lately sort of belief that happened now the other day. It is rooted in understandings and beliefs that are thousands of years old, testimonies. And the claim of Christianity is that all of the revelation of the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and that the God who made himself known in the Old Testament has come to us in the person of Jesus. And Jesus' birth, what we have come to call Christmas, is the start of another chapter in God's redemption plan of making all things new. And so today, as we start to prepare our hearts for Christmas, we will be looking at what the prophet Micah, in particular, prophesied about the Messiah that would come in this celebration of Christmas as we have come to know it. Now, I want to read to you very quickly some motivation for why we would consider the prophet Micah and it's a, it's a short verse we'll be looking at a little bit later on, but it emphasizes for us the significance of considering Micah as one of the minor prophets as he has come to be known. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 5 says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And this is the verse here, this little verse. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. The prophet that Matthew is speaking of there is Micah. So let's read Micah chapter 5, verses 2 to 5. And Micah says, But you, Bethlehem Ephratah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be our peace. Those words, of course, they were written in Hebrew back then, were written by the prophet Micah about 2,750 years ago. And those words were written about 720 years 
before Jesus was born. Imagine receiving a word of knowledge about the birth of someone 700 years in advance. That thought boggles my mind. Now, Micah lived in a little town named Moresheth. And Moresheth was about 35 kilometers southwest of Jerusalem in what was a farming community. If you look at the, the map there, there's a little blue circle there. That is where Moresheth is, and the star over there is where Jerusalem is. So this, this little town was about 35 kilometers from the, the, the major town of Jerusalem. And so he ministered and came from among the farmers of his people. Now, Micah lived at the same time as the prophets Isaiah, Amos, and Hosea, and he actually shares some prophecies with these other prophets. Prophets that also made prophecies, and there is actually one in particular that he shares with Isaiah virtually word for word that we'll look at a little bit later on. He lived during the reign of King Jotham of Judah and the succeeding kings, King Ahaz and Hezekiah, about 150 years before Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians. And at this time, the promised land was divided into two kingdoms. You see there's Israel there and believe there's Judah. So the promised land had been divided into these two kingdoms. The northern kingdom was called Israel and the southern kingdom was called Judah and Moresheth was down there in Judah. Now there's a lot of theology in the book of Micah. And there's a, there's a possibility that we can kind of get confused. And so we'll just look at the big picture so that we can kind of understand and establish in our minds the context of the prophecy of the birth of the Messiah. Now, as often before Micah and after Micah, the people of both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom had abandoned the ways of God. Jerusalem and Samaria, the two capital cities of these Jewish kingdoms, had become what we could call centers of idol worship and immoral living. In this context, the rich oppressed the poor and the laws of the Torah were rejected. And so as the call to minister with the prophecies of God, resting heavily on Micah, he came out to denounce the evils that filled his beloved country. And Micah's prophecies can be divided into two components. And the one component would be judgment. And this component of judgment was always balanced out with hope. And so like Isaiah, the great prophet who lived about the same time, Micah admonished his people to return to God. And he was especially bitter about the ruling class who used their positions of power to enrich themselves at the expense of the poor. And these were the prophet's words about them. In Micah chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, this is what Micah says. He says, 
Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light they carry it out because it is in their power to do it. They covet fields and seize them, and houses, and take them. They defraud people of their homes. They rob them of their inheritance. Therefore the Lord says, I am planning disaster against this people. From which you cannot save yourselves, you will no longer walk proudly, for it will be a time of calamity. So Micah describes the sins of the people. And he emphasizes the sins of the leaders and the judges. And the, and the words that Micah uses is, those who make crooked all that is straight. And he has harsh words for the judges that can be bribed and the priests who could be hired, who said to themselves that evil cannot befall us. And Micah says, if they continued in their evil way, the prophet warned, Zion shall be plowed up like a field, and Jerusalem shall become a ruinous heap. And so as we read through the book of Micah, we see that Micah enters into an argument with his people. And he pleads with them on God's behalf. And in this back and forth, he reminds the people of God, of God's great deeds for them. But then Israel reject God. Thank you. And this is how Micah reminds them in Micah 6. He says, my people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt (coughs) and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered, remember your journey with Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. And after Micah says this, we encounter those three verses later on that we spent much time in this past year reflecting on in terms of what God expects of Israel. And Micah frames it by saying, that God's demands are clear and simple. And he says, he has told you, O man, what is good and what God requires of you, only to do justly and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God, he says in Micah 6, 8. And so this is what's going on in Micah's context. And Micah speaks his prophecies, as you look at the whole book, in three oracles or cycles each beginning with the admonition to listen, to hear. And within each oracle, he moves from doom to hope, from doom to hope, from doom to hope. Because they have broken God's law that was given at Sinai, and hope because of God's unchanging covenant with their forefathers. And so it is at, at the end of the second cycle, that Micah delivers the prophecy that relates to Christmas as we have come. And as Micah speaks this prophecy, he starts out by being very specific in mentioning Bethlehem. He says, but you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, 
who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Now we've all come to understand that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And this is how Matthew records it. This is what I touched on earlier on. And Matthew says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. So there it is. Matthew saying what the prophet had said 700 years before. Bethlehem is distinguished as Ephratah, (coughs) in the land of Judah. And Micah mentions the detail of Ephrata as there was another town in Galilee also called Bethlehem. And so it's kind of, he's being very specific. It's like olden times GPS by giving you the exact position of where this town was. And interestingly enough, this was also the hometown of David. We, we read in 1 Samuel chapter 17 and verse 12, it says, Now David was the son of an Ephratite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. And so one of the Christmas carols that we sing, the words say, once in royal David's city. Royal David's city is the Bethlehem of Ephratah. Now the name Bethlehem means house of bread. Beit means house, Lechem means bread. And the area of of Bethlehem was a grain-producing region in the Old Testament, in Old Testament times. And Bethlehem actually supplied Jerusalem with their grain for making bread. This is a picture from the early 1800s. Obviously, it didn't look like that, but it gives you an idea. And the name Ephratah means fruitful in Hebrew. As this town, House of Bread, Bethlehem, was also known for its vineyards and its olive orchards, as well as, of course, their grain fields. And so it was recognized as a very fertile and a fruitful place. But there was something else that Bethlehem was also well known for in those times. As it was an agricultural town, they also farmed with sheep. And so there were many shepherds and they also supplied sheep. But these sheep weren't being supplied for meat. They were being supplied as lambs for sacrifice in the temple of Jerusalem. And Bethlehem actually supplied hundreds of lambs to Jerusalem that would be used for sacrifice at the temple. And so ironically, it would be from Bethlehem 
that the ultimate Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world would be born and offered as a sacrifice for our sins. And so Micah says here that it would be from little town of Bethlehem that the king, who is not only from David's line, but a divine king would come. Verse 2, he says, From you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel. Bethlehem, a humble place of working class people. Rather than from mighty Jerusalem, the capital of Judah, with its royal palace, rather the rescuer king would come from humble Bethlehem. In our context, I think I could compare it to perhaps Cyrus or Rosenville or, or Malmesbury. <laughs> Bethlehem was nowhere. It was a small town to the southwest of Jerusalem, yet Micah prophesied that this remote farming village would be the birthplace of the Messiah. Now, although today Bethlehem is known all around the world, it was insignificant back then. It wasn't even mentioned when Joshua divided the promised land up with the different tribes in Joshua chapter 15. Yet God chose and continues to choose the simple things that are often overlooked in favor of grandeur and status. And then Micah says, when this king comes, justice and security will return to Israel. Whereas the old shepherds had stolen from the the flock, as he says in chapter 3, this ruler would feed the flock. The hopes of peace that Micah talks about in chapter 4 will now be realized because he himself will be their peace. And so as we reflect on that, the fact that Micah says that he will bring this peace, I am reminded of the, of, of the time that the night when Jesus died, he looked at his disciples and he said, peace I leave with you. Peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Jesus came so that we would experience peace. So what can we learn from Micah that we can take into this Christmas season? I think the first point we can expand on a little bit is that God chooses the weak and the significant to usher in His presence. And the fact that He does so is not because it happens by default. I don't believe that it's a case of of God saying, oh, there's no one of good stature. There's no one who's highly educated that I could use to perform and bring about my purpose. He actively goes in pursuit of the weak and the insignificant. The powerful and the influential of that time may have thought that God would choose Jerusalem, but instead... God kind of turns his back on the metropolis and chooses this little town of Bethlehem. 
And people, no doubt, would have looked at it and said, how still we see you lie. How can God do anything great out of this place? But He does. And today, God continues to use the insignificant. And you may this morning feel that you are not important and you may not be anyone of significance. But that does not mean that God doesn't have something important for you to do. Secondly, God keeps His promises. And He has a wonderful future in store for us. Micah's prophecy not only ends with the birth of the Savior, but he looks beyond that into even our futures. And he describes and frame for us, frames for us there the wonderful future that we have in store in the hands of the Savior. Now, I am sure this morning that the majority of us here have a testimony of some kind that shows that God is a God who keeps His promises. And that He is a God who will never leave us nor forsake us. And so God said that He would send a Messiah. And He said that this Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem. And it happened. It may have happened several hundred years later, but it happened. Finally, earlier on I mentioned that Micah shared certain prophecies with Isaiah, virtually word for word, and here it is. Micah chapter 4, verses 3 to 5, and Isaiah 2, 4. Micah says, He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Isaiah says virtually the same thing. A shared prophecy at the same time. Now, in New York, outside the UN buildings, there's a bronze sculpture, and this is a bronze sculpture, that was created by a Soviet artist, and it was presented to the United Nations in the 1950s by the Russian government. And the sculpture depicts, depicts the figure of a man holding aloft a hammer with one hand and a sword in the other. And he is beating this sword and making it into a plowshare. And this statue is meant to symbolize man's desire to put an end to war and to convert the means of destruction into creative tools for the benefit of mankind. And at the base of this sculpture, on the plinth, is the prophecy that both Micah and Isaiah declared 2,750 years ago. It is etched on the base there. And the prophecy speaks of a coming time that will be characterized by the security, the prosperity, and the well-being which belong to the peace that God's Messiah will bring. Now, unfortunately, while this desire is being expressed and is etched at the base of the sculpture, the whole first half of the scripture has selectively 
not been included. That tells us that only when Messiah comes will this be able to happen. And when I consider this, it strikes me that not much has changed from the time that Micah made these judgments and presented hope over God's people. And to me, possibly a difference there is that while they were waiting for the Messiah to come back in Micah's Micah's time, they were waiting for the Messiah to be born into the world. For us now in 2019, he has already been born. He has already come and he has started to establish his kingdom. But as it was in Micah's time, people's hearts are still turned against him. And so we find that people want to celebrate Christmas, but they don't want Christ. People want the blessing, but they deny the blesser. And so this Christmas, as we prepare our hearts to celebrate the occasion of the birth of the Savior, let us be mindful of the fact that God can use any one of us even if we feel insignificant, to tell of the fact that we serve a God who keeps His promises and that He has come so that we may have life and life in abundance. And let us not be one of those who want to celebrate Christmas but deny the Christ. Let us not be those who want the blessing but deny the blesser.